Section 3 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Taylor D. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 2, Part 1, James Oliver. James Oliver was born in Roxbyshire, Scotland, August the 28th, 823. He died March the 2nd, 1908. He was the youngest of a brood of eight, six boys and two girls. He was the last run of shad, to use the phrase of Theodore Parker, who had a similar honor. Just why the youngest should eclipse the rest, as occasionally happens, is explained by Dr. Tilden on the hypothesis that a mother gives this last little surprise party an amount of love and tenderness not vouchsafed the rest. Let the philosophers philosophize. We deal with facts, not theories, and no one will deny that James Oliver was a very potent, human, and stubborn fact. He was Scotch. His father was a shepherd on a landed estate, where the noses of the sheep grew sharp that they might feed between the stones. The family was very poor, but poverty in the old world grows into a habit, and so the Olivers did not suffer. They huddled close for warmth in their little cottage, and were grateful for parish and shelter. In 1830, the oldest boy, John, filled with the spirit of unrest, tied up all of his earthly goods in a red handkerchief and came to America. He found work at a dollar a day and wrote glowing letters home of a country where no one picked up faggots for fires, but where forests were actually in the way. He also said he ate at his employer's table, and they had meat three times a week. Of course, he had meat three times a day, but he didn't want to run the risk of being placed in the Ananias Club by telling the truth. A little later, Andrew and Jane, the next in point of age, came too, and slipped at once into money-making jobs, piling up wealth at the rate of $3 a week. When three of a brood have gone from the home nest, they pull hard on the heartstrings of the mother. Women, at the last, have more courage than men, when they have. Partnerships are very seldom equal partnerships. One takes the lead. In this case, the gray mare was the better horse, and James Oliver got his initiative from his mother. We are all going to America, the mother would say. And then the worthy shepherd man would give a hundred and fifty reasons why it was impossible. He had become pot-bound. Fear and inertia had him by the foot. He was too old to try to do anything but care for sheep, he pleaded. And persistently, as she knitted furiously, the mother would repeat, We are all going to America. Little Jamie was eleven years old. He was a swart and sandy little Scot, with freckles, a full moon face, and a head of tousled hair that defied the comb. "'We are all going to America!' echoed Jamie. "'We are going to America to make our fortunes!' John, Andrew, and Jane had sent back real money. They must have earned it. All the debts were cleaned up, and the things they had borrowed were returned. The mother took charge and sold all the little surplus belongings, and the day came when they locked the door of the old stone cottage and took the key to the landlord in his big house and left it. They rode away in a kind neighbor's cart, bound for the seacoast. Everybody cried but Jamie. It was glorious to go away. Such wonderful things could be seen all along the route. They took passage in a sailing ship crowded with emigrants. It was a stormy trip. Everybody was sick. Several died, and there were burials at sea when the plank was tilted and the body slid into the yeasty deep. Jamie got into trouble once by asking how the dead man could ever be found when it came to Judgment Day. And also, the captain got after him with a robe's end because he scrambled upon the quarter deck when the mate went aft. 
The disposition to take charge was even then germinating, and he asked more questions than ten men could answer. Once, when the hatches were battened down, and the angry waves washed the deck, and the elder Oliver prophesied that all were soon going to Davy Jones' locker, Jamie reported that the sailors on deck were swearing, and all took courage. The storm blew over, as storms usually do, and the friendly shores of America came in sight. There were prayer meetings on deck, and songs of thanksgiving were sung as the ship tacked slowly up the narrows. Some of our ancestors landed at Jamestown, some at Plymouth Rock, and some at Castle Garden. If the last named had less to boast of in way of ancestry, they had fewer follies to explain away than either of the others. They may have fallen on their knees, but they did not fall on the Aborigines. They were for the most part friendly, kind, and full of the right spirit, the spirit of helpfulness. At Castle Garden, one man gave Jamie an orange, and another man gave him a kick. He never forgot either, and would undoubtedly have paid both parties back if he had met them in later life. There was a trip to Albany on a steamboat, the first our friends had ever seen. It burned wood and stopped every few miles for fuel. They ate brown bread and oatmeal, and at New York bought some smoked bear's meat and venison. At Albany, an Indian sold them sassafras for tea, also some dried blackberries. It was a regular feast. At Albany, there was a wonderful invention, a railroad. The coaches ran up the hill without horses or an engine, and the father explained that it wasn't a miracle either. A long rope ran around a big wheel at the top of the hill, and there was a car that ran down the hill as another one ran up. The railroad extended to Schenectady, 16 miles away, and the trip was made in less than half a day if the weather was good. There, they transferred to a canal boat. They had no money to pay for a stateroom, and so camped on deck. It was lots of fun. Jamie then and there decided that someday he would be the captain of a fast packet on a raging canal. His fond hope was never realized. After the cooped-up quarters on the ocean, the smoothness and freedom of the Erie Canal were heavenly. They saw birds and squirrels, and once they caught a glimpse of a wolf. At Montezuma, they changed canal boats, because the craft they were on went through to Buffalo, and they wished to go up to Geneva, where John, Andrew, and Jane were getting rich. Two miles out of Geneva, the boat slowed up, a plank was run out, and all went ashore. John worked for a farmer a mile away. They found him, and in the dusty road, another prayer meeting was held, when everybody kneeled and thanked God that the long journey was ended. Paterfamilias had predicted they would never arrive, but he was wrong. The next day, they saw Andrew and Jane, and tears of joy were rained down everybody's back. Now, for the first time, they had plenty to eat. Meat every day, potatoes, onions, and corn on the ear. There is no corn in Scotland, and Jamie thought that corn on the ear was merely a new way of cooking beans. He cleaned off the cob and then sent the stick back to have it refilled. America was a wonderful country, and Brother John had not really told half the truth about it. Jamie got a job at 50 cents a week with board. 50 cents was a great deal more than half a dollar. I guess so. He would have been paid more, only the farmer said he was a greenhorn and couldn't speak English. Jamie inwardly resented and denied both accusations, but kept silent for fear he might lose his job. His only sorrow was that he could see his mother only once a week. His chief care was as to what he should do with his money. In the fall of 1836, there were several Scotch families going from Geneva to the far west, that is to say, Indiana. The Oliver family was induced to go too, because in Indiana, the government was giving away farms to anyone who would live on them and hold them down. They settled first in LaGrange County, and later moved to Mishawaka, St. Joseph County, where Andrew Oliver had taken up his abode. Mishawaka was a thriving little city, made so largely by the fact that iron ore, 
bog iron was being found thereabouts. The town was on the St. Joseph River, right on the line of transportation, and boats were pulled down and up, clear to Lake Michigan. It was much easier and cheaper to pull a boat than to drive a wagon through the woods and across the muddy prairies. Mishawaka was going to be a great city. Everybody said so. There was a good log schoolhouse at Mishawaka, kept by a worthy man by the name of Merrifield, who knew how to use the birch. Here, James went to school for just one winter. That was his entire schooling, although he was a student and a learner to the day of his death. The elder Oliver fell sick of chills and fever. He sort of languished for the hills of Bonnie Scotland. He could not adapt himself to pioneer life, and in the fall of 1837, he died. This was the end of a school education for James. He had to go to work earning money. He became the little father of the family, which James J. Hill says is the luckiest thing that can happen to a boy. He hired out for $6 a month, and at the end of every month took $5 home to his mother. Jamie was 14 and could do a man's work at almost anything. He has a man's appetite, at least, said the farmer's wife, for he took dinner with the man he worked for. He soon proved he could do a man's work, too. This man had a pole boat on the river, and James was given a chance to try his seamanship. He might have settled down for a life as a poleman, but he saw little chance for promotion, and he wanted to work at something that would fit him for a better job. Then the worst about life on the river was that each poleman was paid a portion of his wages in whiskey, and the rivermen seemed intent on drinking the stills dry. James had not only a strong desire to be decent, but liked also to be with decent people. Now, in Mishawaka there were some very fine folks, the family of Joseph Doty, for instance. The Dotys lived in a two-story house and had a picket fence. James had dug a ditch for Mr. Doty and split out shingles for a roof for the Doty barn. At such times he got his dinner at Doty's, for it was the rule then that you always had to feed your help, no matter who they were, just as you feed the threshers and harvesters and silo men now. About this time, James began to put bear's grease on his unruly shock of yellow hair and tried to part it and bring it down in a nice smooth pat on the side. That's a sure sign. The few who noticed the change said it was all on account of Susan Doty. Once, when Susan passed the Johnny Cake to James, he emptied the whole plate in his lap, to his eternal shame and the joy of the whole town, which soon heard of it through a talkative hired man who was present and laughed uproariously, as hired men are apt to do. James once heard Susan say that she didn't like rivermen, and that is probably the reason James quit the river, but he didn't tell her so. Not then, at least. He got a job in the iron mill and learned to smelt iron, and he became a pretty good molder, too. Then the hard times came on, and the iron mill shut down. But there was a cooper's shop in town, and James was already very handy with a draw shave and getting out staves. Most of the men worked by the day, but he asked to work by the piece. They humored him, and he made over $2 a day. Joseph Doty was a subscriber to Gleason's Pictorial and Godey's Ladybook. They also had bound copies of Poor Richard's Almanac and The Spectator, with nearly 40 other books. James Oliver read them all, with Susan's help. Then something terrible happened. The young folks suddenly discovered that they were very much in love with each other. The Doty family saw it too, and disapproved. The Dotys were English, but as the family had been in America for a century, that made a big difference. Susan was the handsomest and smartest girl in town. Everybody said so. She seemed much older than James Oliver, but the fact was they were of the same age. The Doty family objected to the match, but Doty the Elder one day dropped a hint that if young Oliver owned a house to take a wife to, 
he might consider the matter. The news reached Oliver. He knew of a man who wanted to sell his house, as he was going to move to a town called Fort Dearborn, now known as Chicago, which had recently been incorporated and had nearly a thousand inhabitants. The house was a well-built cottage, not very large, but big enough for two. It was a slab house, with a mud chimney and a nice floor of pounded blue clay. It had two rooms, a cupboard across the corner, a loft to store things in, and forty wooden pegs to hang things on. Oliver offered the man $18 for the mansion, cash down. The offer was accepted, the money paid, and the receipt was duly shown to Joseph Doty, Esquire. And so, James and Susan were married on May 30, 1844, and all Mishawaka gave them a shower. To say that they lived happily ever afterward would be trite, but it would also be true. James Oliver was 32 years old before he really struck his pace. He had worked at the Cooper's trade, at molding and at farming. His $18 house at Mishawaka had transformed itself into one worth a thousand, fully paid for. The god's half-acre had become a quarter section. His wife had beauty and competence, two things which do not always go together. She was industrious, economical, intelligent, and ambitious. She was a helpmeet in all that the word implies. The man whose heart is at rest is the only one who can win. Jealousy gnaws, doubt disrupts. But love and faith mean sanity, strength, usefulness, and length of days. The man who succeeds is the one who is helped by a good woman. Two children had come to them. They were Joseph D. and Josephine. Napoleon was always a hero to James Oliver. His courage, initiative, and welling sense of power, more than his actual deeds, were the attraction. The Empress Josephine was a better woman than Napoleon was a man, contended Susan. Susan was right, and James acknowledged it, so the girl baby was named Josephine. The boy was named Joseph, in honor of his grandfather Doty, who had passed away, but who, before his passing, had come to see that nature was nearer than he had been. Children should exercise great care in the selection of their parents. Very, very few children are ever dowered with a love that makes for a strength of head, hand, and heart as were these. In 1855, James Oliver was over at South Bend, a town that had started up a few miles down the river from Mishawaka, and accidentally met a man who wanted to sell his one-fourth interest in a foundry. He would sell at absolutely inventory value. They made an inventory, and the one-fourth came to just $88.96. Oliver had $100 in his pocket and paid the man at once. Cast-iron plows formed one item of this little foundry's work. Oliver, being a farmer, knew plows, and he knew that there was not a good plow in the world. Where others saw and accepted, he rebelled. He insisted that an approximately perfect plow could be made. He realized that a good plow should stay in the ground without wearing out the man at the handles. The man who hasn't been jerked up astride at the plow handles or been flung into the furrow by a bulky plow has never had his vocabulary tested. Oliver had a theory that the plow should be as light in weight as was consistent with endurance and good work, and that a moldboard should scour so as to turn the soil with a singing sound. Then the share, or cutting edge, must be made separate from the moldboard so as to be easily and cheaply replaced. A plow could be made that needn't be fought to keep it furrow-wise. Without tiring the reader with mechanical details, let the fact be stated that after twelve years of experimenting, planning, dreaming, thinking, working, striving, Often perplexed, disappointed, and ridiculed, James Oliver perfected his chilled plow. He had a moldboard nearly as bright as a diamond and about as hard, one that sang at its work. Instead of a dead pull, it sort of sails through the soil, 
a surprised farmer said. To be exact, it reduced the draft on the team from 20% to one-half, depending on the nature of the soil. It was the difference between pulling a low-wheeled lumber wagon and riding in a buggy. From this on, the business grew slowly, steadily, surely. James Oliver anticipated that other Plowwise Scott, Andrew Carnegie, who said, Young man, put all of your eggs in one basket and then watch the basket. On this policy has the Oliver Chilled Plow Works been built up and maintained, until the plant now covers 75 acres, with a floor space of over 30 acres and a capacity of more than half a million plows a year. The enterprise supplies bread and butter to more than 20,000 mouths and is without serious rival in its chosen field. If the horse tribe could speak, it would arise in Winnie Peans to the name of Oliver, joining in the chorus of farmers. For a moldboard that always scours gives a peace to a farmer like unto that given to a prima donna by a dress that fits in the back. While James Oliver was not a distinctively religious man, yet many passages of scripture that he had learned at his mother's knee clung to him through his long life and leaped easily to his tongue. One of his favorite and oft-quoted verses was this from Isaiah, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The big idea of chilled metal for the moldboard of a plow probably had its germ in the mind of James Oliver from this very passage of scripture. When Cincinnatus left his plow in the field to go in defense of his country, his excuse was the only one that could pardon such a breach, he once said. Oliver hated war. His bent was for the peaceful arts, for that which would give fruits and flowers and better homes for the people, for love, joy, and all that makes for the good of women and children and those who have lived long. James Oliver loved old people, and he loved children. He realized that the awful burdens and woes of war fall on the innocent and the helpless. And so the business of converting sword metal into plow metal made an appeal to him. Being a metal worker and knowing much of the history of the metals, he knew of the Toledo blade, that secret and marvelous invention with its tremendous strength, keen cutting edge, and lightness. To make a moldboard as finely tempered in its way as a Toledo blade was his ambition. He used to declare that the secret of the sword makers of old Toledo in Spain was his secret too. Whether this was absolutely true is not for us to question. Perhaps a little egotism in a man of this character should be allowable. Cast iron plows, as well as the steel plows of that date, were very heavy, wore out rapidly, the metal being soft, and didn't scour, except in the purer sands and gravels. The Sharon moldboard quickly accumulated soil, increased the draft, forced the plow out of the ground, destroyed the regularity of the furrows, killed the horses, and ruined the temper of the farmer. Every few minutes the plowman had to scrape off the soil from the moldboard with his boot heel, or stick, or paddle. When a local rival fitted out a plow with a leather pocket tacked onto his plow beam and offered to give a paddle with every plow, James Oliver laughed aloud. I give no paddles because I do not believe in them, either for punishment or plow use. My plows and my children do not need paddles, was his remark. The one particular thing, the big idea, in the Oliver plow was the chilled moldboard. Chilling the iron by having a compartment of water adjoining the casting clay gives a temper to the metal that can be attained in no other way. To produce a chilled moldboard was the one particular achievement of James Oliver. 
Others had tried it, but the sudden cooling of the metal had caused the moldboard to warp and lose its shape, and all good plowmen know that a moldboard has to have a form as exact in its way as the back of a violin, otherwise it simply pushes its way through the ground, gathering soil and rubbish in front of it until horses, lines, lash, and cuss words drop in despair and give it up. The desirable and necessary thing was to preserve the exact and delicate shape of the moldboard, so that it would scour as bright as a new silver dollar in any soil, rolling and tossing the dirt from it. An Oliver moldboard has little checkerboard lines across it. These come from marks in the mold, made to allow the gas to escape when the metal is chilled, and thus all warping and twisting is prevented. Morse, in inventing the telegraph key, worked out his miracle of dot and dash in a single night. The thought came to him that electricity flowed in a continuous current, and that by breaking or intercepting this current, a flash of light could be made or a lever moved. Then these breaks in the current could stand for letters or words. It was a very simple proposition, so simple that men marveled that no one had ever thought of it before. Watt's discovery of the expansive power of steam was made in watching the cover of his mother's tea kettle vibrate. Gutenberg's invention of printing from movable type, Arkwright with his spitting jenny, and Eli Whitney with his cotton gin worked on mechanical principles that were very simple. After they were explained, exactly so. Oliver's invention was a simple one, but tremendously effective. When we consider that one half of our population is farmers, and that 60% of the annual wealth of the world is the production of men who follow the fresh furrow, we see how mighty and far-reaching is an invention that lightens labor, as this most efficient tool certainly does. Accidentally, I found an interesting item on page 276 of the Senate report of the 45th Congress. Mr. Coffin, statistician, was testifying as an expert on the value of patents to the people. Mr. Coffin says, My estimate is that for a single year, if all of the farmers in the United States had used the Oliver chilled plows instead of the regular steel or iron plow, the saving in labor would have totaled the sum of $45 million. When the papers announced the passing of James Oliver, some of them stated that he was probably the richest man in Indiana. This fact of itself would not make him worthy of the world's special attention. There are two things we want to know about a very rich man. First, how did he get his wealth? Second, what is he doing with it? But the fact that wealth was not the end or aim of this man, that riches came to him merely as an incident of human service, and that his wealth was used in giving employment to a vast army of workmen, makes the name of Oliver one that merits our remembrance. James Oliver worked for one thing and got another. We lose that for which we clutch. The hot attempt to secure a thing sets in motion an opposition which defeats us. All the beautiful rewards of life come by indirection, and are the incidental results of simply doing our work up to our highest and best. The striker, with a lust for more money and shorter hours, the party who wears the face off the clock, and the man with a continual eye on the pay envelope, all have their reward, and it is mighty small. Nemesis with her barrel stave lies in wait for them around the corner. They get what is coming to them. The Oliver fortune is founded on reciprocity. James Oliver was a farmer. In fact, it was the joke of his friends to say that he took as much pride in his farming as in his manufacturing. Mr. Oliver considered himself a farmer, and regarded every farmer as a brother or partner to himself. I am a partner of the farmer, and the farmer is a partner of nature, he used to say. He always looked forward to the time when he would go back to the farm and earn his living by tilling the soil. He studied the wants of the farmer, 
knew the value of good roads, of fertilizers and drainage, and would argue long and vigorously as to the saving in plowing with three horses instead of two, or on the use of mules versus horses. He had positive views as to the value of Clydesdales compared with Percherons. So did he love the Clydes that for many years he drove a half-breed, shaggy-legged, and flat-tailed plow horse to a buggy, and used to declare that all a good Clyde really needed was patience and training to make him a racehorse. He used to declare the horse he drove could trot very fast, if I would let him out. Unhappily, he never let him out, but the suspicion was that the speed limit of the honest nag was about six miles an hour, with the driver working his passage. Ayrshire cattle always caught his eye, and he would stop farmers in the field and interrogate them as to their success in cattle breeding. When told that his love for Ayrshire cattle was only a prejudice on account of his love for Robert Burns, who was born in Ayr, he would say, a man's a man for all of that. He declared that great men and great animals always came from the same soil, and where you could produce good horses and cattle, you could grow great men. End of section 3. Recording by Taylor D.